Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today is the day that more than 50,000 education workers across the province will, will start voting on the tentative deal that the union reached with the Ford government last weekend. Will they approve the agreement? Well, we'll talk about that. Could the Ford government's latest interference with Bill 39 raise a constitutional challenge? And Sarah Austin, the CEO of the Children's First Canada Group, will join us to discuss the concerns from parents as several Ontario children's hospitals are cancelling surgeries. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots going on at Queen's Park, as we've been talking about. Uh, the uh, municipal employees uh, are uh, uh, just tentatively reached some sort of an agreement with the province. We're going to begin voting in that. And uh, what if they gave a, a leadership convention and a leadership race and nobody showed up? It's not quite that bad, but the NDP are v- coming very, very close to their deadline. Uh, of picking a new leader, and uh, there's only one name in the hat at this stage. That's kind of different, isn't it? Joining us to talk about all these things is Alan Hale. Alan, of course, is a reporter with Queen's Park Today. Uh, Alan, great to have you back. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Let's let's first of all talk about the education workers. Uh, it was interesting. It, it was like the 11th hour. You know, Remember, they mm-hmm. had a 5 o'clock deadline on Sunday, as you reported. Uh, Stephen Lecce came out and said we had a tentative deal. Uh, we heard from the union, and they said, we think the deal sucks, but, you know, it's a tentative deal. They seem to have changed their attitude in the last couple of days. What are you hearing, Alan? So they had a uh, a membership meeting, uh, and they have said, um, they, they have told the their, like, memberships, their 55,000 membership, that they should uh, ratify this deal. That, uh, but uh, from my understanding, they are, like, they are required to Rake that recommendation, and it was definitely made a bit like through gritted teeth. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, the president of the un- of uh, the union, uh, Laura Walton, was t- basically saying that this is a not a good deal. Uh, that it doesn't have the money for uh, what they're calling services, which really amounts to hiring more education workers to increase. Um, service levels for students. Um, so you might have more uh, education workers uh, so, oh, or education assistants, so they would have more time to spend with each individual student. That's the, that sort of thing. Yeah, but interestingly, the uh, president of Nat- QP National did say that this is that the deal achieves that all that can be achieved, which mean does sort of seem to indicate that they don't actually want to go back to the negotiate negotiating table they maybe they do really want the uh membership to ratify this and be done with it i i initially i was not so sure that's what they wanted that maybe they wanted the workers to um reject this deal and then put the uh the government in a bit of an awkward position of having to now uh, be against the actual workers and not just the union leaders, but maybe that's that might not actually be what's happening. So they have, they've also pushed back the um, the the end date for this vote. It was going to be done on Sunday. It's now going to be over a week from now. So yeah, I think I think there's probably a pretty good chance they just want to be done with this, and that'll be I guess that'll be good for parents because that means no more education worker strikes for four years. What do we know about the contract? I mean, they were pretty uh, <laughs> closeted about exactly what's going to be in there. Uh, I know one of the beefs the union had was this two-tier system of salary increases. Uh, and and the, they said, no, it's got to be one for everybody. I, I don't know if they've achieved that. We haven't really had much confirmation of anything, okay. yet, have we? Okay. Uh, so what we know do know about this agreement is that the two-tiered thing is gone. 
Uh, what has what we the union has told us is that the government offered a uh, $1 per hour per year increase for four years. So every year you get another dollar per hour. And that's flat rate completely across the board. Every single um, education worker will get that regardless of how much money they make. And that on average, if you have to put that into a percentage, it's something like, oh, uh, it's like, like three, four percent, something like that um and on average and so we, that's what we do know uh we also know that uh the government didn't budge on that services spending that the uh, union wanted uh that was just like a non-starter they weren't going to hire more people or whatever that uh the service money means in this context but um yeah it's so we know that the two tier is gone and they're getting a dollar an hour and i think us, a lot of people will probably be happy with that i'm sure I would think so, yeah. And as you say, we'll find out uh, in the next few days just how this is going to roll out. Uh, NDP, of course, are, are well, leaderless. Peter Tabbins is the interim leader after Andrea Horvath mm-hmm. uh, retired, resigned, whichever word you want to use on election night. They're coming very close to the deadline where they want to pick a new leader, and there's only one name in the hat at this stage. That, that's kind of surprising, isn't it? It is, actually. I was really expecting this to be a big race. Um, there's some interesting internal politics within the NDP right now. And I was really sure there were going to be candidates from like all wings of the party trying to like, you know, come and take, uh, get their candidate to be the next uh, leader. But at the moment, there's only one, uh, Merritt Stiles is, uh, the only per she's the, uh, MPP for Davenport. And, uh, she's also the, um, the critic, uh, the education critic for the party, a pretty high profile uh, MPP in the party, to be sure. Uh, very well respected in the party as well. Um, if there had been more of a like field, I'm sure she probably would have been like um, the sort of more consensus type choice. Uh, but yeah, at the moment, she is the only one. And we have heard people like Wayne Gates and Chris Glover or other M- NDP MPPs who have like sort of said hummed and hawed about, oh, we're thinking about it. But it's deadlines on December 4th <laughs> and nobody has nobody yeah. else has taken the jump yet. Well, and, and there's, as you say, there are some requirements that have to be met here. Uh, they have to pay a $55,000 fee by the deadline. Uh, they can't start fundraising until after they're registered. So they've got to have that money and they've, they've got to get signatures, a uh, hundred members with at least half of them coming from women, gender diverse or non-binary members and a quarter from equity seeking groups. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if, if they're going to get involved in this, uh, Alan, they, they better get moving on it. They don't have much time. Marriage styles apparently has met uh, most, if not all of these requirements. And, and the other names you've mentioned, we talked to Wayne Gates, I guess, just after the, uh, the municipal or provincial election. And mm-hmm. he, as you say, he was kicking the tires. Uh, Salma Makwa from uh, a Northern Indigenous member of the NDP caucus, uh, who also says, well, he's considering it right now. But time's running out. It takes a while to put a team together, doesn't it? Yeah. And I mean, you like those signatures are also very specific, too. You got to go and find the uh, the right demographics to uh, <laughs> to get on your nomination paper. But um yeah, I I was I'm just really surprised because we have like this um this conflict going on within the NDP right now between uh, these grassroots um, supporters who are ext- who are quite left wing and the um, 
the like party central party staff like uh provincial director uh laura walton who's not going to be a uh, name that a lot of people are going to know but she's a pretty important person in the ndp she was a big part of like andrea horvath's team uh she was also uh she also helped orchestrate their election strategy which was kind of controversial during the election a lot of people were just like kicked at a lot of candidates were just flat out rejected because uh maybe something silly they had said on facebook like four years previously it may left a lot of bad uh, taste in people's mouths and so we have the these grassroots members who really want to take down walton and like decentralize power in the um in the party and like you know give the power back to the people that sort of thing but like i haven't seen anybody like come up and like champion their position all we have is uh merit styles i'm just really surprised really surprised that this has not turned into more of a thing and i don't know well, the you and party I doesn't even have the sorry go ahead i was just gonna say right after the election you and i talked about this and as andrea horvath stepped aside the criticism against uh, andrea horvath was that maybe she was too old school too quote-unquote traditional NDP and they they were more progressive part that said we want to move it you know into the 21st century you know maybe we're not going to be labor-centric anymore and those elements are still there and as far as I'm concerned and uh, you know the debate is still ongoing so you'd thought that maybe some of the representatives from those mindsets would be involved in this but so far nothing yeah and in get it's interesting because I've been told the party doesn't even have like a proper um established process for acclaiming um a a nude leader and then the claiming means that you know there was no other candidates only one candidate they win by default there's no process for that so they're still going to have to have a vote a vote with one person to vote for if that's what ends up happening but they're still going to vote and then the debate they were going to have is going to turn so they still have to go through the motions of having the uh, the campaign because they don't have any like established rules for not doing that. So clearly, like n- nobody was expecting this. Everybody's like strand uh, struggling to figure out what to do if nobody else comes forward. It's just it's really unexpected. I was really I was really expecting this to be like a big thing that's going to decide like the future of like progressive NDP politics in Ontario, and it's just not happening. No, it hasn't. And of course, let's not forget either the liberals are in the same conundrum, but they we're not hearing anything from them. It's radio silence from them. <laughs> Alan, as always, uh, thank you so much for the time. Uh, lots going on at Queen's Park. It's always great to be able to check in with you and uh, get the lay of the land there. Thanks for this today. Oh, thank you. Alan Hale, uh, reporter with Queen's Park today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about uh, some of the controversial pieces of legislation that the Ford government has introduced and, and in some cases even passed uh, since the last uh, provincial election just a few months ago. One of them is, uh, well, essentially it's called the Strong Mayors uh, Bill, which uh, gives uh, the mayors of two cities, uh, uh, Ottawa and Toronto, very special, some people call it superpowers. And uh, as a matter of fact, the, the Premier already mentioned that the, he may actually expand that package of powers that uh, that mayors, strong mayors can have. Uh, that's only in two cities so far, but he, he's already told us that that list is going to be expanded. Uh, places like Hamilton, London, other cities like that are probably also going to uh, be granted these powers. Not everybody's happy about this because there is the potential here for a whole lot to go wrong. And, and there's another element that Maybe, maybe this is not the piece of legislation that was necessary uh, to try to alleviate some of the pressure that's going on at the municipal level these days. I'm going to bring Jeff Birch into the conversation. Jeff is the uh, NDP MPP for Niagara Centre. He's also 
the opposition critic for municipal affairs. Uh, Jeff, thanks for taking some time for us today. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Well, listen, your, your portfolio is municipal affairs. You've been a busy guy lately because there's a lot going on with municipal affairs in this government in a very short period of time. Yeah, it's been crazy uh, with uh, between the housing bills and the uh, bills that affect uh, municipal governments. And, of course, uh, tied into that is all of the uh, legislation around farming and the green belt and uh, the building of housing uh, on the green belt. So it's, uh, it ties in a whole bunch of different, uh, ministries, but they certainly seem to be focused on, uh, on changing things at the municipal level and, uh, without a heck of a lot of consultation. Uh, or none in some cases, as some people yeah. would suggest, especially with strong mayor's bill. And, and now our reporting indicates that, uh, that, uh, you're going to have a, a meeting of, of the minds here with, uh, some elected officials, both past and present, who are going to express some concerns about that. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot going on, and uh, today, uh, right now, actually, it's going on uh, a number of uh, Toronto uh, NDP MPPs, uh, together with former mayors and current uh, councillors, are expressing some real concern about uh, Bill 39, which uh, enhances the uh, strong mayor powers. Uh, It also appoints uh, some of the regional chairs uh, in Niagara, Peel, and York, and it takes about 4,500 acres out of the uh, Duffins Rouge Agricultural Preserve, which is, uh, as as you know, we're losing about over 300 acres of farmland per day in Ontario. And here's uh, the government uh, taking 4,500 acres out of the Greenbelt uh, to give, uh, you know, for developers and uh, developers who uh, donate an awful lot of money uh, to the uh, PC Party of Ontario. So, uh, some really concerning uh, things, and so uh, you've got a lot of opposition building to it, uh, past and present uh, politicians and uh, and environmentalists, uh, especially. To the uh, to the idea about the regional government and the regional chairs, uh, of course. Well, as you know, and I'll just remind our listeners because we talked about this on the show just the other day. Mm-hmm that uh, they're also doing a review about two-tier government in, in places like Halton and, and other areas and in Niagara uh, and perhaps eliminating it altogether. So uh, there's a lot going on here, a lot of action and, uh, going on. But about focus, just if I could zero in for Bill 39 for just a second here. One of the major concerns about this when they first even introduced this bill, as, as you know, Jeff, was it gives way too much power to one person on council. And, and, and basically... Uh, many people are characterizing this as a slap in the face about d- democratic principles, about, uh, you know, we elect people uh, to city councils, we elect somebody to be the mayor of, of that community, uh, but everybody gets a vote and everybody gets a say in this. And mm-hmm. and the concern here is that strong mayors can basically override, without even a majority on council, can override a council decision and, and just maintain exactly do what they want to do. And that I, I I'm concerned about abuses of that power. What are you hearing? Yeah, there's there's a lot of concern right across the board because really it's a it's a slap in the face to the principle of uh, majority rules, right? Which uh, which is the basis of uh, of democracy. So uh, under this legislation, a mayor can control council with a third of uh, council. So in the case of Toronto, eight out of twenty five councillors and the mayor can uh, pass uh, bylaws. They can pass a budget. They can uh, do all kinds of things, and so. Uh, when you combine that power with uh, what the premier is calling provincial priorities, uh, if his priorities are opening up the green belt or expanding the urban boundaries uh, or you know developing on farmland, uh, all of those things, uh, 
he can work through a mayor and a third of the council to pass uh, whatever he wants. Uh, so that's, you know, really troubling. I used to be a, a city councillor and uh, uh, spent a couple of terms doing it. And I'll tell you, if a mayor tried that when I was a councillor, uh, it, it would, you know, it would stall council. It wouldn't make things move faster. And I think that's one of the unintended consequences of this. When, when a mayor tries to do this, uh, the two-thirds of council that are not being included in the decision, uh, you know, that's going to cause a split on a lot of these councils. And anyone who, who sat on a split council knows that a heck of a lot less gets done, not more. Well, and I, I spent, as our listeners know, some time on, on city council here in the Hamilton area some years ago as well. Uh, and I get that, that, that there can be some problems and some inertia because there can be uh, factions that vote in, in, in blocks. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. I know a mayor can get very frustrated because he or she, you know, runs on, on an agenda. And if they can't get that through, uh, they get very frustrated. But at the same time, maybe there's a reason why they can't get it through uh, because there's a number of other people on the council. And and I don't know if this is the solution to, to what goes on. I'm sure you saw that, Jeff, in your municipal experience, that every now and then uh, council just couldn't seem to get whole things done because they couldn't seem to agree and get a consensus on anything. But does that yeah, mean you give one person on the council enough power mm-hmm. just to say, okay, we're going to steamroll ahead anyway? Uh, it, it gives too much power to one person. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I was lucky when I sat on council for a couple of terms. We had a we had a strong mayor. They didn't need strong mayor powers. And they, they were a strong mayor because they built consensus on council. And uh, we got a heck of a lot done uh, because of that. And, you know, you do things as a council. You... Uh, develop a strategic plan that everyone buys into. And, uh, of course, there are problems along the way, but that's what uh, democracy is. And each of those councillors is there, elected by their constituents. And their their constituents, uh, who, who they're representing, their opinion shouldn't be less than uh, that of another councillor, just because the mayor happens to agree with them or not. Um, that's a, uh, an affront to our democratic principles. So, um you know, people are really concerned about this, and I don't think it's going to have the uh, the intended consequences. Well, and there's a, a caveat to this too, which I, I find troubling, is uh, when when they granted these powers, and right now, as we mentioned, it's Ottawa and Toronto, but a number of other communities are going to be involved in this. They've already told us that. Yeah. Is that uh, they're basically saying to the mayor of, of those communities, uh, "Yeah, you've got these superpowers now, but only if you follow our agenda." Uh, yep. In other words, if you do our bidding for us at the local level, we'll let you do this stuff. If you don't, uh, then sorry, you lose. And, and so it's it's a pretty strong caveat, basically saying you you need to be an advocate for the provincial government policies, or you're not going to get much done. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And uh, in the case of the uh, regional councils, part of the of Bill 39 was appointing, um, being able to appoint those chairs. Uh, the, the government stopped them from electing them at large in 2018. Uh, now they're stopping them from even selecting them from among democratically elected councillors. So uh, now the, the premier and the minister are going to choose who the regional uh, chair is. And if they don't do their bidding, uh, they can appoint someone else. Uh, so they've taken democracy completely out of out of those uh, regional councils. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's strong-arming municipalities to do uh what what are what they're referring to as provincial priorities which is whatever uh, doug ford wants and and i know that uh, mayor tory in toronto of course has talked about this and said you know i'm, I'm not going to abuse those powers and uh, even if even if you take john tory at his word 
maybe he won't, uh, but you don't know that someone else down the road might. In other words, that that, that stuff is still there, and the, the opportunity for abuse is is right there in front of people to be able to simply grab this and simply say, I'm going to ram stuff through here and get my agenda through, whether it's liked or not, whether people like it or not. And uh, the, the possibility is, is always going to be there unless you have, and you've talked about this before, some checks and balances in a democratic principle. But this bill essentially eliminates most of those checks and balances. It absolutely does. And I find Meritorious comments laughable. He, he met in the closed door meetings, uh, with uh, with uh, the premier and and requested these powers, so why would you request something that that you don't intend to use? Um, so I, I I think it's clear that he does intend to use them whenever um, he needs to uh, to bypass a, a democratic vote of his council because that's the only uh, thing that the strong mayor power would be used for is to get around uh, democracy and uh, implement what he and the premier uh, want to happen, regardless of what the uh, majority of of the council wants so um you know th- there aren't a lot of checks and balances and uh they've removed uh pro- the, the biggest check and balance which is uh democracy well you know local councils over the last uh, few days now have just sworn in their newly elected councils uh from mm-hmm. the last municipal election i think toronto just did theirs like a day or two ago uh, hamilton was last week and and they're all coming in and I've, I've I've mentioned on the program. I, I feel badly for the new people on council because uh, basically your 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 powers as a councillor have been gutted now by some of this legislation. Uh, you know, conservation authorities are basically being wiped out uh, in name only. I mean, they're not allowed to, mm-hmm. to weigh in on just about anything anymore. Uh, as you, land tribunals can overrule a council decision when it comes to housing developments or anything else, and then you've got the green belt incursions. Uh, we've got the debate here in Hamilton about the you know the. The, the urban boundary, which the province seems to be uh, running roughshod over right now, too. So mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be a very frustrating time for these new councils. Well, yeah, that's a great point. And add to that the fact that the the housing legislation uh, takes all kinds of revenue away from municipalities. So there's, you know, the, the, depending on who you talk to, you know, up to a billion dollars or more of, uh, you know, development fees and things like that that are coming out of provincial coffers. So at the same time, they're they're having their hands tied. Um, they're also losing all kinds of revenue, and a lot of municipalities don't know how they're going to make that revenue up. In Niagara, um, it's about fifty million dollars at first glance from just the region alone. Uh, so, and I know London's uh, going to take a, a big hit as well. So, uh, you know, at the same time that you're you're having these powers to address the problems they're trying to address taken away. You're also having your hands tied by losing revenue. So, um, you know, municipalities are really, really concerned, and uh, they're they're starting to get. Um, I've never seen municipalities and organizations like AMO uh, getting so upset with the government, uh, because as you mentioned earlier, um, they have to kind of play ball with the, the provincial government because they have so much power over them. Um, but they're really being backed into a corner, and uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the government's not listening to anything that they say uh, in the legislature or in the committee work that we're that we're trying to do. Well, and as you know from your experience, municipal governments have two ways of raising revenue: uh, user fees or taxes, property yep. taxes. And uh, they're looking at about a seven percent increase in Hamilton right now for the upcoming budget. Uh, I, I've got to leave it here. We're just about out of time, Jeff. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate you shedding some light on this for us. Anytime. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have a, a health crisis in this country that uh, a lot of politicians are a little reticent to talk about because the next question is going to be, well, what are you doing about it? And it's it's a legitimate concern these days, so much so that uh, children's hospitals are, are seemingly being impacted even more than, uh, than general hospitals are. The Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, in, that's in the Ottawa area, has now opened a second pediatric ICU. And uh, the uh, health minister, Sylvia Jones, says, uh, well, there may be some good signs in some of the numbers they've seen recently. What we are seeing is a slowing down of the increase. Um, I'm not going to presuppose that that means we are coming to a plateau, but we are seeing a slowing down of the, the percentage increase. Uh, I don't know exactly where they get those numbers, but uh, because the stuff I'm seeing here seems to contradict that. You've got three Ontario Children's Hospitals right now that are canceling surgeries. Uh, Dozens of parents are sharing their stories about how this is impacting their families and their kids. Uh, And to shed some light on this, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Sarah L. Austin, who is the CEO of Children First Canada, uh, who've uh, done an awful lot of work on this and advocacy uh, for this. Uh, Sarah, first and foremost, I know how busy you are these days. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe if you could just uh, paint a picture for us of, of what we're seeing. We've talked about some of the children's hospitals, the Children's Hospital in London. That our listeners, of course, at the CFPL know all about that. Uh, the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, uh, the Children's Hospital in Eastern Ontario, uh, Mac Kids Hospital here in Hamilton. We were outraged uh, during the pandemic and when we saw the number of hospitalizations that were going on and the impact that it had with surgeries being canceled and people being checked at the door before they were even allowed in. That's still going on, but it seems to be happening now because of the viruses, especially towards children. Why aren't we as equally outraged now as we were then? Well, I think a lot of parents are outraged and grandparents. I mean, that's partly why this group of moms and grandmothers have come together to release an open letter calling on our federal and provincial governments to take action. You know, look at any parent uh, Facebook feed right now, and it will be flooded with pleas for desperate help for access to children's Tylenol and Advil. Um, please for uh, for help around the, the enormous wait times. I mean, we're hearing reports of parents waiting 15, 20, sometimes 40 hours for their children to be seen in an emergency room. Uh, there are desperate pleas for help, but our politicians are not listening. And it really is, it, it's a, you know, I, I think it leaves many of us wondering what has happened to the state of our nation when our kids are in such dire straits and you know, facing this triple-demic of influenza, RSV and COVID-19, where our children are literally struggling to breathe, sometimes even on the point of death. And we don't see a, a, um, you know, a full-blown emergency response to help our children. It, it really does leave us wondering what is going wrong with our, our society. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, we, that's why we've come together to demand action. Is it, is it because we're numb to this stuff now that it's been around so long and and maybe we've seen some people that, that are not as badly impacted by, by these viruses as others. So we just figure, what's the big deal? You get sick for a couple of days and then you're fine. Uh, which, which I, and I can't even understand mm-hmm. that mindset because these are people that by definition are very, very sick. That's why they're in ICUs and that's why they're in hospital. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we certainly are facing a pandemic f- fatigue, you know, the, uh, the pushback around, um, you know, proven and effective solutions, whether they be, um, you know, requiring masks in crowded indoor spaces or even simple solutions like vaccinating our children from preventable illnesses. Uh, there is a real fatigue that we are experiencing across the country where people have just had enough. Um, but you know, I think if you, you, you've, 
unless your child is in that situation where they are at risk, if you're you know, up at one in the morning fighting a 40 degree fever and don't have medication, or unless you're sitting in a waiting room, you don't feel that sense of urgency. It's, it's somebody else's problem. And I think you know, we have to come back to the sense that the care of our children is all of our responsibility. Uh, we have collective responsibility to ensure the survival and development of our children. And uh, you know, we have to get over the sense of fatigue and um, and take personal responsibility for our own actions, but also demand better of our leaders. Yeah, I know you raise a very interesting point here because I think we, we had that debate uh, in the early parts of the pandemic when we started to see the the, the huge pressure that was being put on, on hospitals especially. Uh, and But it, like so many other things in the healthcare system, as I'm sure you know, Sarah, people don't pay attention to it until they need it. You know, mm-hmm. We don't always go into hospitals on a daily basis. I mean, we just don't do that. Uh, so you figure, okay, that's that's something that's abstract to me. I don't, you know, it's too bad that they have to cancel surgeries. Uh, if you're one of the people whose surgery is canceled, it's more than too bad. It can be real problematic. Maybe not, you know, something that's going to kill you, but you're going to be much more discomfort for a longer period of time. Uh, and it's the same thing with these kids. Uh, the only problem here is the kids don't have the voice that adults do. And and a lot of this is silent suffering, which is why I think it was so important for your organization to to be proactive on this. Yeah, absolutely. Kids don't vote, so they don't have a say in electing the leaders and holding them accountable. Um, although last week we did bring 20,000 of them together across the country to rally for their rights. Uh, this past Sunday marked National Child Day. It's a day to honor the rights of children and to celebrate um, all 8 million kids in our country. And we saw 20,000 of them stand up and rally for their rights and uh, and demand more of our leaders. But the question is, is anybody listening? You know, are, are, are our elected officials paying attention to these children who make up nearly a quarter of our population and are 100% of our future. You know, they may not be able to vote, but their their voices matter, uh, their interests matter, and it's time for our officials to to take concrete and decisive action. I know it's not always the job of, you know, sometimes as leaders, we have to make difficult decisions that are not popular. We know that bringing back masks and requiring them uh, is, is is not an easy task in this current environment. But but it is it has been proven that in schools in particular, uh, that it drastically reduces the amount of children getting sick. And at, at a crisis that we're facing right now, when we're seeing so many children ill at death's doorstop, you know, we do need to take um, significant measures to curb the viral spread, to be able to keep our kids healthy and well, to be able to keep them in school. And uh, and that's why we're calling for action. You know, we, we're calling for immediate solutions right now, like boosting vaccines and requiring masks in crowded indoor spaces. But we also need systemic solutions. We want to see the feds and provinces getting back to the table to negotiate funding for our healthcare system to address this crisis and move us out of it. But, you know, there needs to be some strings attached. There needs to be funding that's allocated to children and capturing data on the health of our children that we don't currently do. We also want to see a national strategy. You know, we are currently ranked 48th globally for children's well-being. Now, that is a shocking um, ranking for Canada, a country that prides herself in our democracy and prosperity and protection of human rights, that we fall so far behind when it comes to the well-being of our children should shock us all. Um, you know, so a national strategy really is required, and we've called for the appointment of a commissioner or an ombudsperson, somebody who will be a leader and accountable to lead us out of this crisis and get us back to becoming a world-leading ch- country to raise our children. Well, I mean, some prominent people that are behind your cause right now, uh, Kathleen Taylor, who, of course, is the chair of uh, Sick Kids Hospital Board of Trustees, uh, former Premier Kathleen Wynne is involved in this, uh, former MP uh, Lisa Wright. Uh, who's been very proactive in the community over the last number of years on a number of healthcare issues. 
these are the co-chairs, of course, and we know about that Coalition for a Better Future that, uh, that Kathleen Wynne and Lisa Raitt are co-chairing. Uh, pretty strong voices uh, and some folks that know their way around the, the halls of politics these days. Uh, are, you, are you confident that you can make some progress here and, 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 and be heard? Well, I certainly hope so. You know, we have a group of, you know, very smart, highly influential women who are also mothers and grandmothers and caregivers who are all personally affected by this. But they're also leaders of organizations who have staff who are affected by this. And they have the ear of our political leaders federally and provincially. And so I really hope our leaders are listening to them uh, and that they will take decisive action. You know, children's lives are on the line. This is a crisis of of a huge proportion, it's time for our leaders to take action and uh, and to listen to these moms and grandmoms who are speaking out and and demanding better for our children. As you hear some of these stories, and you know, again, if it's not affecting you directly, I mean, a lot of the people just it's it's white noise to them, and they just don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But for instance, we talked about the, you know the the lack of of medications for children that are coming down with these viruses, uh, Tylenol, any number of other different things. Uh, that are just not there. I mean, you know, walk into a pharmacy these days and you're going to see still a lot of empty shelves there. But if if you've ever been a parent and you've got a two or three or four year old or what, who's, you know, as you say, spiking a fever in the middle of the night and you've got nothing to give them, nothing to help them, nothing to alleviate this. Uh, and you're twofold. First of all, they're suffering. And B, you don't know how severe this is going to get. And, uh, you know, it's it's, it's got to be awfully difficult for those parents uh, to be able to get that message across for somebody who simply says, well, you know, that doesn't really impact me, but it does. It impacts all of us. You know, uh, I think we all have kids in our lives that we know and love and we want the best for. And this is a time where we really do need to have this collective sense of responsibility for the care of our children. Uh, this impacts kids and it impacts families. It's impacting our economy. You know, countless kids are missing days from school or daycare right now. Parents are at home caring for their sick children. There is a huge economic impact for that. Uh, but we're talking about the fate of our children. And uh, if if that doesn't you know, shake us out of our, um, uh, you know, the sense of, um, I don't know, we need a sense of inertia well, to get it's lethargy this. right and, yeah. now. We just, mm -hmm. as you yes. say, it's burnout. It's lethargy. We're just figuring out, ah, we're almost at the end of this anyway. Mm -hmm. we, we're, we're certainly not out of this by any means. Doctors are saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. We're looking at several weeks ahead of us of this ongoing crisis, if not longer. Uh, this flu and, um, and COVID wave and RSV are, you know, we're, we're certainly not through it. And, um, you know, every day kids' lives are on the line. We're seeing reports of, of childhood deaths from, from these very severe illnesses. Uh, this is something that requires decisive action. And this is all of our responsibility to speak up and demand better of our leaders. Well, you know, when you look at the data here, and and that tells a story in and of itself, and you've mentioned the, the vaccination programs more than a couple of times here, and, and how important that is. Uh, you know, the vaccination rates for kids are, are nowhere near where they should be. Uh, and I, again, I don't know if that's because of parents who just figured, oh, it's not worth it, or they think, hey, I'm vaccinated, so my kid's going to be just fine. Uh, but it's we're leaving them defenseless in situations like this because there was a mindset, as you recall, about two years ago, that said, oh, the, you know, the, especially COVID, it, it, it hardly ever affects kids. Well, we were wrong about that. And we were wrong about the impact of these other viruses too. They, they, and they seem to be the most vulnerable right now because we sp spent the least amount of attention protecting them with vaccinations and with masking and things of this nature. Uh, and now it's, it's, it's coming back to bite us. And, and you know the government has to respond to this. And I know it's not popular, as you said, to talk about mandates. We just had the Burlington mayor on uh, just a few minutes ago because they've instituted in Burlington, of course, 
a six-week uh, mandatory mask program for employees working indoors in crowded environments. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, a brave thing to do because there's going to be so much pushback on these things right now. But, you know, if you if you want to be an elected official, a city councilor, a mayor, an MP, a premier, uh, you better be ready to make some of the tough calls and take some of the heat for it. And I don't know that too many people are ready to step up and do that now. You know, this absolutely is a time for brave leadership for making tough decisions. As parents, we need to uh, listen to our children's hospitals and pediatric leaders who are pleading with us to vaccinate our children and to follow the science, to follow the evidence and to ensure that our kids um, are are vaccinated, that they're wearing high quality masks when they're in, indoors. Uh, but it is also a time for brave leadership for our, our leaders. It's They need to make the tough decisions for the sake of our children. Uh, we're not talking about putting these measures in place forever. We're talking about getting us through this crisis, um, ensuring that our children survive and and making the investments that are needed to getting us back to becoming you know a great place to raise a child. Sarah, I, I thank you for spending some time with us today, and thank you for the great work that you and your organization are doing. And uh, we wish you be- best of luck. Uh, hopefully, the, these voices will be heard, and, and they will respond in, in kind so we can get this problem under control once again. We'll stay in touch, but thank you for this today. Thank you so much. Sarah Austin, who is the CEO for Children First Canada. And and look at the numbers. And we, we've talked about the children's hospitals. Of course, it's having an impact on every other hospital, too. And, uh, and until we get this thing under control again, like we said earlier, I mean, if we're not going to learn from the last two and a half years, look out. <laughs> because now it, it's a triple-headed monster. It's not just COVID. There's other things going on here, too, that, uh, that are having an impact on kids and adults. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.